episode is brought to you by Invita, your solution to season-long nitrogen fixation when and where your crop needs it. Hello and welcome back to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Cawhorn and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, welcome back to um, the Ag Labor Series, episode number three. Um, we've really, really enjoyed diving into this this topic that's been near and dear to to agriculture and hasn't really has been talked about I would say in the bars and coffee shops Catherine but not necessarily um in public as much and it's starting to get some traction and it's starting to um get some things happening so we're excited to to do that but before um we dive into this week's episode. We do want to recognize the the massive earthquakes that happened. Believe it was Monday. Um, forgive me if my dates are wrong. I know that with the international time difference, it could be a little different. But the mass- massive casualties over there, and the and the severe cold and the war they're already experiencing in that region of the wor- world, um, definitely sending lots and lots of uh, thoughts and prayers to the Turkey and Syrian people um, right now, because I can't even imagine um, what's what's happening over there. So listeners, <laughs> we wanted to, to recognize that before we dive in. So Catherine, do you want to introduce our, our very special guest this week? Yeah, for sure. So I am delighted to bring you listeners, finally, my, uh, my very talented, um, far ranging interest brother in law, Dan Lott speech. Uh, Dan and I have known each other since about a year after Jimmy and I started dating, uh, when he finally showed back up from his uh, army deployments um, in several places all over the world. And he has since rejoined his family's farm in Deeth, Nevada, where they grow um, specialty crops and vegetables. So I will let Dan speak about that in just a second, but um, I just wanna tell you guys that Dan's gonna be an awesome and exciting guest. He and I wax philosophic all the time. We talk about everything from cheese and sourdough bread making to, you know, immigration and labor policy, like we're going to talk about today, to to business plans, to um, to everything going back to the Holy Roman Empire, which Dan traces literally everything back to. So I'm sure he'll find a way to do that today. But anyway, Dan, welcome to the show, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks so much for that uh, really flattering introduction. Uh, hopefully, I'll, I'll I'll do my best to live up to that. Uh, as you said, Dan Lot Speech. I'm uh, one third of Lot Speech Family Farm. Um, yeah, in Deeth, Nevada. If you've never heard of that, uh, you are in good company. Uh, very small place <laughs> in northeastern Nevada, um, and Lot Speech Family Farm is we're we're sort of highly diversified. And we're in the business of, um, you know, relatively small acreage, high intensity production and selling direct to consumer. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing out here. And uh, yeah, and so it's an interesting, um, it's, it's an interesting business to be in. Uh, lots of challenges, uh, you know, doing this in the high desert, we sort of, Set the set the initial difficulty level basically as hard as we uh, possibly could, um, and so we've had to learn a lot. It's still really a work in progress, 
And, uh, but yeah, it's, it makes it so it's always an interesting job. Well, uh, you know, that's what, that's what keeps life interesting is it's never the same day twice. And um, yeah. I've never actually never been in Deeth for a, for a season with you guys. We usually visit at Christmas time, but um, it sounds like, well, you guys are going 117 miles an hour and uh, every day is, is a little bit different. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for telling us about that. And um, I guess to start off, tell us about your experiences with trying to get labor for um, for Lot Speech Family Farms and also your most recent experience with uh, with the job that you um, that you've had most recently. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so I, I, I guess I did one more thing I wanted to add before we get into that is I've been listening to the, uh, the Ag Labor series that you guys have been talking about with a lot of interest. Um, you guys have already had some really good guests on. So, so uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate being able to, to add to this conversation. Um, here on, on our farm, the business model that we're going for, inherently, it's, it's one of the most labor-intensive business models out there in agriculture. Um, and so we definitely rely on hired labor um, one of the challenges that we've had is just getting people to, to stick around. Um, one of the things we were a bit surprised by is we found it a lot more difficult, even in a, uh, you know, a farming ranching community, we found it a lot more difficult to find, um, you know, our, our first place that we were looking is probably like a lot of farms is we thought for sure, you know, neighbors, kids, would want a chance to, uh, you know, get off the family ranch and go work for somebody else uh, because that usually involves getting paid quite a bit more than your parents are uh, um, willing to give to you that way. Um, we found it actually surprisingly difficult to find those, um, find those kids, uh, you know, in at least in the first couple of years that we were doing this. Um, starting last year, we were actually able to find some great high school age kids that help us out during the summertime. But we've also grown to the point where we need additional labor kind of year round. Um, and that one has been a little bit difficult. You know, that one's been a constant challenge as well. Uh, you know, in the, the area that we're in, Oco County, Nevada, one of the primary businesses around here is gold mining. And so that kind of pushes the labor cost higher than in a lot of other areas. And that's one of the challenges that we sort of discovered immediately is when we looked around at sort of trying to find out what national average uh, farm worker wages were and things like that. Um, we found if we looked at just offering the averages, it was really difficult to, to kind of try and attract anybody here. And I think a big part of that is just that, um, you know, that's, those mines uh, really push the uh, the cost of labor up in this area. And so we had to kind of set our sights a little bit higher and adjust, you know, our, a lot of our business planning and things like that to make more room for being able to pay those wages. And quick question, Dan, um, yeah. on, are those, are those mines unionized too, or are they, um, do they, 
not have unions because that makes it hard to compete against too sometimes. Yeah, I don't, these are gold mines primarily. Um, I don't actually know for sure if they're unionized, um, but they are, it's definitely a high skill workforce. And um, I don't know if they actually have a lot of pressure to unionize because it's, it's one that pays high wages just as, as standard practice, Um, or at least they have in my lifetime since I've been here. And um, so they're, they're really able to basically as, as soon as people are skilled there, those minds are happy to offer them really big salaries um, to attract them in. And oftentimes the, the hours are pretty rough. Um, you know, it's hard work, long hours and things like that, but the minds are sure to pay for it so that they always have the labor they need to be able to continue to produce um, that product and gold, you know, it's a high dollar product. So, um, so they've got that margin, those margins going for them. So how many employees does, um, does Lost Speech Family Farm have typically oh. on a year to year basis? Yeah, we're, we're pretty small, um, especially compared to uh, a lot of the other guests that you guys have had on. Um, At our peak, we, um, I think we've, we usually have just had um, one full-time hire and then um, four to five part-time workers, usually, you know, most of them, those high school kids that we're hiring for, for summer labor. Um, So pretty small operation. Uh, but given that we were, we were definitely kind of surprised at, at how much of a, of a challenge we had in, uh, in attracting people into work. So, so like you say, Dan, you're, you're on a fairly smaller scale than the previous guests we've had, but I mean, the labor challenges are no different for you. Hard to find people, um, you know, difficult to compete with wages outside of agriculture averages, um, you know, all the all the normal things we've been hearing. And I think it's important for our listeners um, to understand that this is the same across the board. So this affects small scale producers, medium producers, large producers. It affects every single one of us. Yeah. Um, it's only getting worse. So uh, before we turn our attention to um, not the real reason, but the next reason that, you ha- that we have you on, uh, we're gonna pause for just a second for a word from our sponsors. Have you heard? There's a new nitrogen in town. Invita provides a constant season-long nitrogen supply created directly within the cells of your crop's plants. With Invita, there's no application guesswork. In furrow or foliar, Invita fits your farm's practices and works all season long to provide accessible nitrogen when and where your crop needs it. To learn more about filling your nitrogen gaps this growing season, visit azotic-na.com. That's A-Z-O-T-I-C na.com. So Dan, um, last fall, you came across uh, an editorial written in The Hill by um, some dude called Matt O'Brien, who seems to have a lot of experience or at least a lot of opinions about um, immigration policy in the U.S. And you, you sent it on to me um, and I'm sure that you got the exact reaction that you thought you would get from me with <laughs> total outreach, uh, which is beautiful when you and I are conversing, but, uh, let's, we're, we're going to talk through, um, some of the points he brought up, but why don't you tell our listeners, 
um, the general gist of that article and what your first impression was. Yeah, so from from what I remember, um, that the author of that article was a um, former immigration judge. And so I think that was kind of the, the angle that he was coming at it from. And he was specifically um, writing to oppose some proposed, um, it was specifically the, the proposed Farm Worker Modernization Act, um, which is something that essentially they're trying to make it a little bit easier to get, um, you know, the, what, uh, it's the H-2A um, visas, right? The agricultural worker visas and things like that um, in order to get more workers in, get more farm workers into the country and people actually willing to work on the farms. And his article, you know, he was, he was in opposition to that. And he sort of looked at it as, as just another farm subsidy. And it, it's something that's going to reward illegal immigration. Um, and it costs the American taxpayer money. And then the other angle he took was uh, sort of, a, and, and this was the one that uh, kind of got my blood pressure raised, and I'm sure yours as well, um, was when he said that, uh, you know, cheap farm labor has allowed American agriculture to just get lazy and, you know, a- allowed us to just not pay our farm workers and also to really delay innovation and modernization. So um, he painted this picture of American farms being backwards and, and greedy and, you know, not willing to, to pay a living wage to the workers. And so, yeah, that one, uh, <laughs> it certainly got me going a little bit and I thought it, it might to you as well. Uh, so I ended up sending it your way, yeah. Yep, you sure did. And um, that's it's exactly what happened. It, it got my blood raging. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's so many points to address just within that one small topic besides the rest of the editorial. But I mean, it just it pissed me off because I know um, that in agriculture, I mean, I know it's a little bit different with with your mine example, but um, in agriculture, we have to pay competitive wages, at least compared to other agricultural sectors because otherwise I mean it's it's more than common for you know milkers to leave a dairy to go for an extra 20 cents an hour uh down the road to the next farmer so you know we have to li- or we have to pay competitive wages and at least on my family's farm and in my experience with dairies in general um the wages that we pay are livable um and you know, that's, that's the case as far as I'm aware. And so that, that was a very frustrating point. Um, but anyway, you know, I can go off anytime. So back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, you bring up a really good point. And the other thing is that farm labor tends to be hard work. And so if you offer, you know, the, the prospect of working really hard and, oh, by the way, we're not going to pay you as much as, you know, McDonald's or Subway down the road, uh, you're just not going to get many takers. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, farms are, are definitely forced to pay, um, you know, to pay competitive wages on anyone they're paying. Um, the other thing I found interesting about that, uh, one of your previous guests uh, in this labor series was able to talk a lot about the um, 
you know, about getting immigrant workers in. And one of the things he talked about is that is in no way cheap labor because you have to, um, at a minimum, you've got to be making investments in housing for any of the laborers that you bring in. You've got to provide them a vehicle. Um, so there's, there's a lot of expense that goes into that and that goes into ensuring that, um, that these people coming into the country are being adequately compensated um, for the work that they're doing. So, yeah. Well, and I think even just like having this conversation and, and this is perfect timing because our next week's guest, we got into some of the policy side of things um, with, but you, you know, we just humanizing these workers and like one, we we're required to, to pay competitive wages, like you said, with the competition, but we mm-hmm. care about our employees too. We care about the people right. that come to work every day and we care about their families and we care about um, our communities. And I think that that message gets lost in editorials like this. He obviously hasn't spent a day in Jerome, Idaho. Like it just, <laughs> it, it frustrates me because there, there's still that segregation and, and we need to overcome it and continue to, to find ways to, to move past some of the segregation that does happen between some of the farm labor, um, and the, um, and the owners or the, I would say the native born citizens, but, um, we care. Like, I just, I think the compassion and stuff coming from Washington DC or the cities isn't, isn't always seen because it's painted as factory. And then it's painted as like the, um, industrial revolution when we started having to make those laws of workman's comp and, and, livable wages and, and that sort of thing. And I think they still paint agriculture in that archaic realm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you bring up a really, um, you you bring up a really important point here that, that this specific editorial used. Um, I, I think a lot of times when this gets discussed, uh, and, and, uh, Mr. O'Brien in this other in this piece that specifically we're talking about made full use of this is sort of using a lot of words to paint agricultural operations as being these faceless corporate things and uh, specifically the word big ag gets thrown around a lot right um, and and they sort of they make a lot of use of the fact that a lot of farms do have corporate structures. Um, you know, farms, farming is just like um, any other kind of business in the United States right now, right? Is it's farmers cannot afford to be operating as if it is the 1950s or earlier than that anymore, right? So farms have been forced to modernize their business structures, to modernize their their uh, tax structuring, the way they they uh, go after tax incentives and things like that. And so farms, if you look at those statistics and things like that, um, you know, it's easy to, to sort of skew that to give an impression that farms are these faceless corporations um, and a lot of things get, get uh, taken out. But these exact same corporate structures are in fact family owned. They're businesses that have taken advantage of the country's tax laws 
and uh, and various business structure laws and things like that in order to continue to be competitive in today's business environment. But they are still family farms. You know, 98 percent of the of the farm ownership in this country, including the, the vast majority of the large acreage, large dollar farms are family owned. So, Dan, you and I talking about this over the last couple months, um, something that I remember you saying about, about that very point was it's unreasonable to criticize an industry for being backward and simultaneously attack them for structuring their businesses in modern forward thinking ways. Um, and that's, I mean, I think that hits the nail on the head. And I think it speaks to a larger perception um, that that farms are supposed to be bucolic and pastoral and, you know, the green field and the red barn and the silo. And, you know, the, the food system, the outcomes that people expect are safe, cheap, abundant food on their grocery store shelves. And they don't understand what it, that people think, or the idea that people think that uh, farming is a hobby or that it should be done because it's a way of life um, flies in the face of capitalism, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I can understand both sides of it. You know, my, the other half of my background is coming from the military. Um, and, and that one is kind of similar to farming in that, that, that that view of it as a way of life is still very much there in both of those things. Um, you know, it's farming... <laughs> really is as much an identity as it is the other things. And so, you know, maybe sometimes we can, we can sort of be our own worst enemies in, uh, in dealing with that contradiction as well. But, um, but yeah, that's, it's, it's definitely a a good point. Um, And I kind of wanted to jump on one of the other things you said there on expectations of cheap food and how that plays into um you know, policy and especially ag labor policy, because we have this interesting, um, w- one of the things policy-wise, I guess, that helps ensure that we continue to get that cheap food is the subsidies, right? The direct subsidies, the money that actually goes out to farmers. One of the interesting things um, that this piece brought up, you know, it sort of used those subsidies um, as a way of claiming that this labor isn't needed, but but those two things do tend to be kind of miles apart, right? Most of the direct farm subsidies go to the parts of the industry that have done the most automating and mechanization and things like that. And so they're the ones that are already the least reliant on actual labor. Um, and so the good examples of this are, are the grain farming, right? The wheat, uh, corn, soybean farming. Um, cotton's another one, but that one's, that one's very similar. It's almost entirely mechanized. Um, and so labor costs, or excuse me, labor requirements are much, much lower um, for those portions of the industry. Whereas vegetable and fruit farming, there's still, you know, there's a lot of things that you just, you still need humans um, to be able to do, whether it's picking really tender fruit um, or, you know, that, that 
just nobody's managed to invent a machine that can actually do it with any kind of speed um, and not end up with, with, you know, jam as the final product instead of the fresh fruit. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I think I may have lost the plot a little bit here. I uh, sort of went, went a little bit too far out in the weeds, but um, oh yeah. The, um, the uh, sectors that require the most labor are the ones that also there's hardly any uh, farm subsidy money uh, to help those uh, those portions of the industry out. That's a very fascinating point. Not one I'd ever, to be honest, put two and two together. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we talk about some of the immigration reforms and some of the the struggles with the border or what have you and the struggles to keep people. Um, and even, you know, when we were talking are going clear back to our COVID episodes and just getting, getting people out there to pick, pick the blueberries or get, you know, the plants to stay open because people were sick. Um, those that's where, that's where the hiccups in the supply chain are too, is where there isn't automation. Right. Right. And so yeah. where do we, I guess, what's, what's the solution? Do you, do you push for more automation in your, in your niche market farming, or do you continue to rely on, you know, your summer, summer employment? Yeah, I think, sorry, go ahead. No, just to help you guys out. Yeah, uh, I think the automation is something that that nobody can afford to neglect, right? Is you have to take advantage of that um, as much as you possibly can, even if you are deliberately going for a business model like we are, um, that that is sort of deliberately being more hands-on than, than it necessarily has to be. Um, you know, with this, this small acreage direct to consumer pricing or uh, um, farming style that, that we're doing on our own farm. Um, like I say, it's, a, it's a probably more hands-on than, than fruit and vegetable farming necessarily has to be. Um, but at the same time, we can't afford to, um, to ignore the automation and a lot of the, the tools that are coming out to make the labor more efficient. And I think, um, as I'm saying this, I think one of your, uh, one of your previous guests made this exact point is that, uh, you know, the goal of automation in a lot of these industries isn't necessarily going to be to eliminate labor, but it's, it's got to be employed to make your labor costs more efficient, to make that labor go further for you. Um, in order to, you know, A, keep your business sustainable, make it so your business can actually continue to keep operating, um, and, and B, so that you can, you know, you can seek those margins to be able to provide a living wage for those employees that, that you are paying and that you care about and want them to be able to, uh, um, you know, to, to enjoy a good life as well. 
yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything there that we disagree with. Yeah. Um, um, un- unfortunately, I think there's not a lot of <laughs> solutions necessarily. Um, and, and that's where, where it's really challenging. Um, you know, uh, what's the, uh, what's that old quote that for every uh, difficult problem, there's a uh, clear, concise, simple solution um, that has the, uh, the, the only thing wrong with that is that it's just wrong. <laughs> and so I think this one's no different, right? It's a complex problem and there really aren't any simple solutions. Um, right. I, I, that's, I mean, that's the whole thing about about the whole entire um, labor debate and immigrant labor debate. And that actually brings up the next thing I wanna talk with you about. But before we do that, we're gonna pause for one more message from our sponsor this week. Nitrogen when and where crop needs it has never been easier. In furrow or foliar, Envita grows with a plant, colonizing roots and leaves to fix nitrogen in the cells where it's needed most. Whether you're boosting yield or reducing nitrogen inputs, Invita is the partner your crops have been looking for to bridge nitrogen gaps all season long. To learn more about Invita, visit azotic-na.com. That's A-Z-O-T-I-C-N-A.com. So Dan, you just mentioned that uh, the solutions to, to everything that we've been talking about in terms of immigrant and, and ag labor issues, um, well, they're not simple and it's, they're, they're difficult to kind of search out. So something that, uh, that was also brought up by Mr. O'Brien in his editorial was, um, you know, saying that um, paying a living wage to reduce dependence on foreign labor would Sorry, I'm mixing this up. He said that paying a living wage to to pay to uh, domestic labor would decrease our need for foreign labor. And then he cited a study that suggested a 40% increase in farm pay would only push food costs up by $25 per household. Um, so you had you had something to say about that. And then also, um, if you could address how those costs would be passed on. Uh, through processors and distributors too, because that's another interesting point that uh, you you brought up when you and I were first talking about this. Yeah, and and that's the one where <laughs> it's going to be difficult to uh, to avoid getting fairly snarky because that was the <laughs> one that uh, sort of caused the most eye sprains with with the eye rolls that it uh, um, that it caused. One of the one of the, I think, important things about the study that he references is that it was from, I think, 2019 or, or maybe early 2020. Um, and that was before, you know, the obviously before the last two years that we've all just lived through happened. Um, and one of the, the most important things I think that happened during that time is that profits of everyone in the supply chain in between producers and consumers um, increased by a, by a large margin. Um, you know, like anything else, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, the grocery store profits were partially driven by the fact that more people were going to the grocery store to shop um, for their food 
rather than um, eating out or, or doing those options like that. But another big portion of it is that every single step in that supply chain um, took advantage of, of rising expenses and, uh, and rising costs of everything to increase their margins um, beyond just what was dictated by you know, their, their increase in expenses. Um, and so it's, it's sort of hilarious looking back at this point in time to believe that, um, that, you know, if, if farms, if, if their labor costs went up by 40% and they decided to pass that directly on in the food chain, that every step during that process wouldn't take the opportunity to jack that up just a little bit further. Um, well, I think we can look at the egg industry, not to, and I don't, I'm not an expert in the egg industry by any stretch of the imagination, but you throw in the current labor situation, you throw in avian flu, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, I think I'm spending more than $25 a month extra just in eggs, you know? So there's obviously more than just ag labor there, but right. that's a, that's an example. And you start throwing, you start increasing milk and um, butter and 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 um, your other basic necessities, and I I think we're going to see a bigger cost, and we have seen a, more of a cost just in the last six months. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so, like you said, the eggs is uh, that's the one that we're all living through right now. That's kind of the most upfront in everybody's in everybody's minds. Um, one of the things that 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 study referenced. At the time, uh, it was talking far more about fruits and vegetables, um, and that sort of brought me to the second reason that that argument that 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 study was kind of bogus. That it was it was a very surface level study. Um, one of the other extremely important things, uh, you know, statistics that you have to bring into that is that only eleven percent of adults in the U.S. Um, actually eat the recommended. Uh, amount of vegetables daily, and only 13% uh, get the the recommended amount of fruits. And so if you are attempting to eat healthily, um, the idea that your costs would only go up by $25 per household per month is is just beyond absurd, right? That's an average that's, that's really drug lower by the fact that we just don't really eat very healthily in the United States. And so, you know, on, on average, I guess. And, and so if you want to claim that, uh, oh, that, that everyone's going to be just fine and, and no one will even notice those costs. Um, you know, I think parents that are, that are trying to feed their children a healthy diet, uh, they're going to, especially they're going to notice something very, very different um, from what that study suggests. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that, it, like you say, that's an absurd um, assessment. And I don't know if this is fair to say you guys can tell me this, but to me, it shows a lack of, of um, maybe understanding or just a desire to kind of uh, put blinders on and narrow the issue um, to you know, to get someone to focus on what your agenda is, but it, I mean, 
it's just a lack of understanding and ignorance as to what the reality of the system is, um, you know, all the way from producers to consumers and everything in between. I don't know. Do you guys, I mean, would you agree that that's a, a lack of understanding or, a, I don't know, dangling it as a red herring or should we give this guy a little more credit? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's missing, for me, I think he's missing just a big chunk of what production agriculture in, in any realm is truly about. And for me, if you're going to, while he's had, he's an expert in immigration, um, which would be fascinating to, to, to hear his side on some of that. Um, I, I, he's not an ex expert in agriculture. And I think for him to make the leaps and claims without ever stepping a foot on, on production ag is not fair to agriculture. It's not fair to the producers that spend every day in, in that, in that space. And for them to, for anybody to start telling us what to do without spending a day with us, I think is ridiculous. And I'm not saying we're right in everything we do. And there's definitely places we can, um, we can improve um, in every aspect of our operation, but unless you're in the arena fighting with us or or actually researching what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, don't tell me how to do my job. Like, yeah. don't tell us what to do um, or how to do it or what prices. Like, we're price takers. We're not price makers. And, and to start, now I'm sounding like a victim, which I hate to do, but <laughs> like, unless you want to come step into the ring with us and see what it's like to calve cows or grow veggies or milk cows. Like don't, don't, don't write articles or don't spew legislation that could impact us. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I, I guess one of the, if, if I was going to sort of extend a break in his direction, you know, he's, a, he's a political opinion contributor. Um, and so I, I think it's going to be pretty par for the course when you're cranking out an op-ed every single week um, or maybe multiple per week. Um, there's going to be a lot of grabbing the easy sources and sort of resting on whatever's, you know, whatever the majority of your readers are already going to think about a topic. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's pretty much everywhere in today's political discourse. And so I don't think... Um, that necessarily he's doing anything particularly irresponsible or, or, or outrageous sort of compared to the norm in that space. Um, but on the other side of it, yeah, it, there's clearly, um, there's clearly a lack of due diligence here. Um, and, and it, it sort of, it's also interesting to see someone who spent so long in the immigration space who, um, who appears to be to, to lack uh, so much knowledge about, you know, an industry that that takes up a large chunk of immigrant labor. That's that's a, a you know, a huge um, consumer of that labor. Yeah, no, I think that's and I wonder, too, it's I mean, there's a lot of Im immigration. Um, you know, law lawyering you can do too and so what sector was he in and it clearly wasn't oh sure the the agricultural immigrant foreign-born workers that that we that we all 
employ or, or rely on for our food source. Right, right. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, you know, I, I don't necessarily know that, uh, that I could call myself an immigration expert on the whole. So if there's, if there's things that I'm missing, uh, feel free to, to forward the hate mail in my direction. (laughs) (laughs) Provide your email address. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Dan, before we wrap up, I I just want to go back to that point you said about uh, this Mr. O'Brien guy um, displaying maybe a lack of due diligence and, um, you know, my first, my first instinct, I hope, hopefully human instinct, not just my own is to, you know, to, to get your feathers up a little bit and, you know, assume the worst of people. Um, And, you know, I guess what you said right there is a good point to try and uh, to keep the right mindset and a calmer mindset, more productive mindset, um, that someone isn't necessarily being malicious. He's got a job to do um, and just maybe is being a little bit sloppy about it in in an area that we have a lot of um, opinions and, and uh, stake in the game in. So uh, sure. just a good reminder, you know, for me especially, but I think for anybody in this, um, in this listening to this series and, you know, I, I would tie that in to the other side of, of immigrant labor where, you know, people get upset about the fact that there are immigrants here laboring, um, and doing, you know, like having, having jobs in America, um, and their first reaction is, disdain or dislike or um, unhappiness with that. And, you know, I, I, I guess I would try to turn the conversation in that way too, that, that they aren't here to be malicious or, or irresponsible. They're here to, to uh, make a better life for themselves and their family. So. No, and I think, to be honest, I think that's a great way to end too, because we get, we get wrapped up in, in that and to, to try to go back to my, um, my coach re- always reminds me to try to try to see the best intention in every situation and approach it that way. You can disagree with it, but that they have the the best of intention at heart, or they're trying to be um, the you know they are doing the best that they know how to do in that situation. And so I think Dan, thank you for bringing that that back to light, even though we disagree with with the ag, the ag facts and the ag labor side of it. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you, Dan, for joining us this week. Do you have any parting words, words of wisdom you want to leave listeners and then where can listeners send their love or hate mail to you? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, um, just thanks for having me on. And, uh, and, uh, if I had some advice for the listeners, it would be, uh, tune in to the rest of this ag labor series like I'm going to because I'm really excited about uh, hearing what else you guys have on tap for this so the shameless plug for you guys there um, and uh, yeah and then also if you get a chance go ahead and check out Lots Beach Family Farm uh, we've got uh, you know on Facebook or we do have a website uh, it is it has been sorely neglected by myself, but uh, at least it sort of points you in our direction. So if there's any interest in that, uh, uh, we'd love to uh, to hear from you. And um, yeah, thanks again for, for having me on. It was a good discussion.
Thanks, Dan. And thank you listeners for tuning in to this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can message us at talktous at millennialag.com. Till next week, we are Millennial Ag. Mm-hmm.